0: Have a uh, really pretty unique book right here. I, I bought it over thirty years ago, and and it's not so much its age. It's just I mean I'd be shocked if anybody's heard of this, or or even more has it. It's called "They Went That Away: How the Famous, the Infamous, and the Great Died." I, I mean, right here for your reading, entertainment, and enlightenment is the exits of 175 people what a better thing to enjoy right I, and so I, I thought and the 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 author's kind of surprising malcolm forbes you know like a forbes magazine i mean kind of a, a business guru and then he writes this book on how people died and he and he died right afterwards, so I don't know. But I thought, you know what, this is fun. Let's read some of this this morning, okay? Uh, now, each person gets like two or three pages, and I'm not going to read all two or three pages, so it it might sound like I'm bouncing around a little bit. But uh, I bet you got up this morning and thought, I wonder how Ivan the Terrible died. I'm glad you asked. I, Ivan the Terrible was as, was as bad as he sounds, Still, as far as he's concerned, he made it into heaven. The Russian czar tortured thousands of citizens, indulged in long drinking bouts, and had seven wives. But after each wild affair, Ivan would atone by prostrating himself for hours in front of the church altar with such sincerity that he would would bruise his forehead from hitting the stone church floor. Ivan believed he was divinely chosen to rule Russia, so any of his acts, no matter how terrible, were acts of God. Hmm. As a child, he amused himself by. This will bother some of y'all. Should bother all of us. As a child, he amused himself by throwing cats and dogs from the roof of the Kremlin. As a czar, when a group of 70 citizens complained to him of injustices in their town, he ordered hot wine, poured over their heads, and then had them lie naked in the snow. And they got off pretty good. There was another town that complained about some things. So he went in with the the military. And for five weeks, they tortured and killed 60,000 people. He's a wonderful guy. You'd like to go bowling with him, wouldn't you? Following the custom of Russian rulers, Ivan died a monk, albeit the most murderous monk in history. He was shorn as a monk and buried in monk's robes. It was said that he recanted his sins before he died, and so he fully expected that as a monk he would meet his maker. Possibly, however, he died so suddenly that his aides did the recanting for him. Only Ivan knows what difference it made. Wonderful guy. (laughs) Let's see here another. Well, here's one that kind of fits the season, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate, the Bible tells us, played one of the crucial roles in the history of religion. He ordered the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but the Bible never says what became of him afterward. Pilate, as procurator of Judea, ruled the region on behalf of the Roman emperor Tiberius for 10 years from A.D. 26 to 36. He was considered a harsh ruler and incited trouble among his Jewish subjects. By the time the Jewish priests pressured him to execute Christ, some say Pilate obliged them in order to avoid further confrontation. If so, his acquiescence didn't last long. In A.D. 36, Pilate finally was recalled by Rome to answer charges of cruelty and oppression after he massacred a group of Samaritans. Pilate arrived in Rome to find Emperor Tiberius had died, and Caligula was now in his place. Soon after, according to the 4th century writer Eusebius, Pilate committed suicide. It's unclear whether Caligula ordered Pilate to kill himself or whether Pilate did it in anticipation of the vicious emperor's sentence. Among some early Christians, Pilate's suicide was seen as repentance for his execution of Christ. They regarded... Now, this is news to me. I, I didn't know this before this book. They regarded both Pilate and his wife as saints. I wonder what measurement they were using. In fact, if Pilate actually ever thought twice about the role he played in the Bible, it has been lost to the ages. Let's jump into the We'll, we'll do one more because this is just fun, isn't it? Uh, we'll jump into a little bit more modern America. Charles Schwab. You all know Charles Schwab? Not, not, the, not the commercial on TV, not the company. And man, what a huge company. Do you know how much Charles Schwab company holds in, in uh, assets under management? $3.3 trillion is what they manage. They're doing all right next time you see them on a commercial. But what about the person for whom the company is named? Charles Schwab in 1901 was the highest salaried executive in America as the first president of U.S. Steel. Admitted in 1935 he had a fundamental disagreement with his mentor. I I disagreed with Andrew Carnegie's ideas on how to best distribute wealth. I spent mine. Spending creates more wealth for everybody, said the industrialist, who, after he left U.S. Steel, built Bethlehem Steel into its major competitor. Schwab, worth an estimated $25 million. Now, that that doesn't even hardly sound like anything today, does it? I mean, we all have that much. But remember, this is 1905. Worth an estimated $25 million in his prime, practiced his idea of economic reform by building two of the most palatial homes in the country. In his small hometown of Loretto, Pennsylvania, he had his mother house moved to make way for immigrants. Immigrants, the name of the house. I've learned this. If your house has a name, it's probably pretty big. And his was, there was a respectable 44 rooms in the main house, but that was just one of 18 buildings on a thousand acres, which also included a nine hole golf course and French cottages for the chickens in New York city. Schwab built in 1905 Riverside, again, the name of the house, which turned out to be the last and largest of the city's mansions. It cost $3 million and took four years to build, included 90 bedrooms, and it had its own power plant. Self-indulgent, surely, but the big spender did have his generous side. When the Depression hit, he hired on dozens of extra workers at Immigrant to keep Loretto's residents employed. He also had 27 friends and relatives on a monthly allowance and had co-signed for over a million dollars in personal loans. But commitments like that left Schwab in a bad position when depression severely dropped the value of his Bethlehem stock and other holdings. After his wife died in January 1939, Schwab announced he was closing Riverside and Immigrant permanently because he needed to start life anew. That and he was bankrupt. He, moved, he returned to his small apartment in Park Avenue. You know, you feel kind of bad when it says small apartment. And then Park Avenue, I don't feel so bad anymore. <laughs> he returned home to his small apartment on Park Avenue and died there after a second heart attack on the evening of September 18th. Schwab had done more than spend it all. He left his estate a little over $300,000 in debt. Interesting how how people live, how how people die. You know, you spend time reading a book like that, you realize, man, we die rich and, and we die poor. So, some die in kind of a very ironic way to how they lived. Others die in a way, boy, they got what they had coming to them. Some people's death is just Very simple and natural and hardly noteworthy. Other people's death, right? Very clouded in mystery and and conspiracy and the what's and the why's and the how's. But one thing is for sure, as Time Magazine used to say at the head of its obituary, as it must for all people, death came for. Everybody dies. You know, it's been said, the only two things certain in life are death and taxes, which we get to celebrate in a couple days. I'm, I'm, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not sure how taxes got that status. There's all kinds of people that don't pay taxes, all kinds of people that cheat taxes. But do you realize humanity is, oh, for billions and billions and billions of people that have ever cheated death? It will come for you. Today, we come to the Lord's table to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I kind of want to think today on that word celebrate. I, I, we always say celebrating today, right? But I don't know about you, most of the Lord's Suppers I've been in, it didn't feel much like a celebration. It didn't think, well, I was at a great party this morning. No, as we, as we come to this time, there's a, a real spirit of, of somberness and, and reverence. And for good reason. I, I mean, I think this, the Scripture leads us that way, doesn't it? And look, look how it instructs us up here at, at 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now let, let's stop right there real quick. You... The individual can do something in the next few moments that is unworthy of what Jesus has done for you. That, that should give us pause, right? Shouldn't we slow down before we come rushing into this and, and think, wait, I can do this in a, in a wrong way? And when I do, I'm guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord? No wonder the scripture says, hey, you might want to examine yourself on this one. And we do. As we come to this time, we slow down and and we stop and we examine ourselves. I like to say kind of before, during, and after. If you've heard me do many Lord's suppers, you know I always encourage that 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 examination go on into the afternoon. Because the truth of the matter is, this happens in just moments. It's so quick, isn't it? I mean, we just blow right through here in a few moments and I don't want to be unworthy. So maybe what this Lord's Supper does is it just kind of starts me thinking, hey, as I celebrate God's forgiveness, are there things in my life that don't show that I celebrate God's forgiveness as I remember, as I think on the body and the blood of Jesus, am I engaging in things? Am I, do I have attitudes and mindsets that caused the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus? Man, we, we need to deal with that contradiction. And so it's a time of confession. It's a time of repentance and, and, and therefore kind of that, that somberness as we come to this. It's a humbling time. But having said that, let's remember it is to be a celebration. We're celebrating. 1 Corinthians 11, in giving us instruction, also says as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim. That word proclaim there is a positive word, it's it's an announcement, it's good news, it's the idea of heralding. Go out and herald. There's a party. Go out and herald. There's good news. Now, why would we be so excited? Why would we be celebrating the death of somebody we love? Well, because he's alive, right? He's alive and he lives forever. And because he's alive, we can live forever. We celebrate because he's coming back. Hey, Hey, do you realize when we finish here in a few moments and we walk out those doors... That's one Lord's Supper less before Jesus returns. I mean, there's only so many more times we're going to do this, and he comes back, and we're knocking one off today. Amen. That's what we're celebrating, folks. That's what we're excited about, that death has no hold on me. I can live and I can live forever. It's not my body. It's not my life that accomplished that. It's Jesus. And that's what we celebrate. Death has no hold on me. I live that. I celebrate that. I share that. How exciting as we come to this moment. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15, just a few pages after all that instruction about the Lord's Supper, it talks about death. And it says this in verse 53, for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Why do we go through the door of death? So there can be this transformation from a body that will die to a body that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. But thank God, He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're celebrating. We are celebrating a victory. We are remembering a victory. We leave this table motivated to live and share that victory. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for our lives end and begin with victory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come before you in this moment. And, Lord, I can't help but imagine that there are, there are people throughout this room, because we've all been there, that right now what we're feeling is defeat. We, we feel the defeat of sin and temptation. We feel the defeat of a bad decision. We feel the defeat of rejection. We feel the defeat of worry and anxiety about this week ahead or a situation in front of us. Oh, Lord, this world holds so much defeat for us. But because of your broken body, because of your spilled blood... Defeat will never be the final word for my life. My life will begin and my life will enter into eternal glory in victory because of you. Oh, Jesus, thank you that death has no hold on me. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant Between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. In just a second, our deacons will begin to hand out the elements and just hold on to it for a moment. And when they're all done handing it out, I'll get back up and lead us all together and taking it, and if those of you on the left end would look down under your chairs, you'll see a basket there. So when we're all done taking it, uh, left end of each section, just pick that basket up and, and pass it on down. Oh, folks, as we bow to confess, as we bow to repent, it's not in defeat. It's in victory we come to our Lord. In Isaiah 53, it says that, that Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. God helps us. He gives us a way of remembering that as we put the bread in our mouth and we, and we crush it, and we're reminded of, of what happened in that war, w- what it took to defeat sin and death in my life. When, when he gave us the blood, he says it, it seals a new covenant Without the bread, without the wine, that without the body and blood of Christ, all I will know is defeat. Not just for one day at death, but for all of eternity. But his body secured a victory. His blood secured for me God's love, God's forgiveness and eternal life. You realize what we hold in our hands is why the grave has no hold on you. Jesus said, this is my body, take and eat. This is my blood, it has been poured out for you, take and drink. Okay, if we get the baskets going. Let's pray. Jesus, we pause once again just to say thank you. Thank you that as we leave here, it is with a reminder that we are victorious over sin and death in you. In you only is that victory to be found. Thank you that by your grace... I can, we can be in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.